invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're not already there, page 976 in one of those black Bibles. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one. If you look on the inside, find one that's maybe not as as used, unless you like that. I kind of like used Bibles. It means something. Uh, but uh, I notice some of our kids like to use pencil in that way on them. So find, a, find one that works for you. If you open up the front flap, it says a gift from Union Hill Church, not stolen from, because we actually think we're in the ministry of getting the word out. I know we have access to God's word in a way that no other people in the history of the world has ever had. Most of you hold a device in your hand that can get any translation in the world that's ever been done in a moment. Praise God for that. But there is also something about the sound of flipping pages that is a good thing. I like a tangible Bible to hold, so we invite you to take one if you don't have one or don't have an ESV, the the version that we tend to use here on Sunday mornings. We've read this passage a number of times already, so I'm just going to pray and move right into God's Word this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being the God of the Word and for giving us your Word that we might know you more fully. We do want to know you. We want to see you open the eyes of our heart as we've been singing about. We are now praying in accordance with Paul's words that you would enlighten uh, the eyes of our heart that we might know you more fully in these moments for your glory, Lord. Amen. I want you to know that you have the world's greatest senior pastor. Did you you know that? His name is Jesus. I am but an under-shepherd, and all those that would bear that name, pastor, uh, are but under-shepherds to the good shepherd, the great shepherd. Or like John the Baptist said, I am but a voice He, Jesus, is the Word. I like the term guide. If anything, I am but a guide. He is the way. And God's timing is perfect as it always is on a day that we will vote to amend bylaws with the hope of both raising up and empowering more leaders within the body, as you already are hearing that this morning, Uh, more leaders being raised up and empowered Uh, on a day that we affirm a new elder who's feeling that call to lead and to oversee. Uh, God has us in a portion of his word that reminds us who the leader of the church is, who the head of the church is, who the, the lead senior pastor truly is, and his name is Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 22 and following, God put all things under Christ Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so if you were one who raised your hand, either knowing what it means to be empty and weary and needing filling, and perhaps if even that's your reality this morning after the week or weeks or months that you have walked through, then we have this promise that we have a pastor of the church who is the fullness of God and fills all in all, namely His body, His people. Praise Him. Last week we focused in on this passionate and powerful prayer of the Apostle Paul's that we see in verse 15 and following. And what was Paul's primary plea to God on behalf of the church, 
that they would know him. All, and we, look, we trace so many of Paul's prayers in his whole life. His purpose was that God's people would know him. Ultimately, that all people would know him. But in this, this prayer, he is praying for the church. The church who, in some ways, already does know him. He's praying that they would know him more. That that leads to everything else. That they would know him. Because for Paul and his theology, to know God, to see him with spiritual eyes means to love him, means to trust him, means to then obey him. And so for all of Paul's ministry, it was that they would know him. That was his whole purpose and aim as well. And we are reminded again and again that this, this truly is a prayer for all churches throughout all generations. His prayer in chapter 3 makes that clear. To, to him, to God be the glory throughout the church for all generations. And if that wasn't enough, forever and ever. Amen. So we too are in that legacy of that prayer. Though 2,000 years removed, it is just as powerful for us today. He prays that we would know God by knowing the hope to which we've been called, by knowing the riches of his inheritance, and by knowing the incomparably great power the immeasurably great power toward us who believe. And that's where we left off last week. And now these final few verses of chapter 1 are the expansion of that last prayer that we would know the power toward us who believe. And he describes what that power is. It's a person and how it has, has been and is at work. And of course, Paul points us back to Jesus. He centers us back to Jesus just as he does throughout his letter. It's all about him. Notice the bookends though. If you look at verse 3 where after his initial salutation, uh, he goes on this long run-on sentence. And we said in the Greek, uh, it's hard to find, really there's no punctuation in the original Greek, so that takes work to discern and become more fluent in uh, uh, Greek syntax and grammar. Uh, But most theologians and scholars and would look at this and say, this, there's no break here. This is one incredibly long run-on sentence from about verse 3 to 14. It's as if Paul is pacing, and I can just see him pacing in his cell, although it would probably have been uh, more like a small confined room under house arrest in Rome. And he's got a friend there who is uh, writing out, who is pers- uh, describing what he is proclaiming as he's pacing he is just getting more and more animated as he's preaching the gospel and i th- i can just see him envisioning all of the churches throughout all the places he has already been as if he is standing before them this is the, his the only way he can continue to communicate with this church and so i just see that passion pouring out and as god and the holy spirit worked through the writing of that scribe we end up with a beautiful mess. And we thank the Lord for preserving it for us. So look at the bookends of this uh, section in, in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And then he goes on and on and he concludes that deep breath and then he praise this prayer and at the end of this prayer 
Hear these words, that you may know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And God put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We see those bookends. All of our blessings that we have, even the ones we don't yet know, are found in Christ. And now Christ lives in us. He fills all in all through the Holy Spirit who dwells with His people. Did you notice also that theme of the heavenly places? See, Paul is trying to raise our gaze to fix our gaze on Jesus who is seated on the throne in heaven. How can we be certain of all of these promises? Through faith to be sure. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so when Paul points us to Jesus and where he is presently, he is raising our gaze to the heavenly places, to the King eternal, to the one who has already accomplished all of this. This is why we can have hope, because it is already done. Paul continues this heavenly theme in chapter 2, which we may look at next week, Lord willing. In chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible thought. Maybe it gets passed over because of the depth and riches that are in Ephesians chapter 2. Some of the most famous verses, I think, in all of Scripture. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. We'll get there But here, this verse, this statement, this declaration that maybe we can't even grasp and so we move past it. We have been raised up. Do you see how he speaks? In the present, the ongoing reality of something that has taken place in the past but is ongoing for us. It has happened. You have been raised up and you are seated in the heavenly realms. Does that seem like our present reality and our present experience But for God, it is reality. It is God's perspective. It has been done. You are saved. You are raised up. You are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Paul's purpose throughout his letter is clear. He's writing to the church, believers in God, followers of Jesus, but he's reminding them because for some reason they're prone to forget And so for those other people who are prone to forget and need to be reminded of who God is, of what He's done, and therefore who we are and what we are then called to, praise God for Ephesians, for all those people that tend to forget. We would never, we would never wander or lose sight or live outside of our true identity in Christ, would we? Perhaps we just as desperately need that reminder. And so we've been soaking in this letter and continue to do so. 
Paul raises our gaze away from the physical and earthly, for this is not our home. It is merely temporary. We are passing through. And so that's probably the best phrase I can think of for a saint who dies, is they have passed. They have passed on from death to life, life eternal. Paul raises us on our gaze to our true heavenly home that we would have spiritual eyes that somehow, though our eyes here are truly physical and earthly and we see the material and we become fixated on it, that we would have His eyes. He prayed for the church that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know Him, that we would see Him more fully. Give us glimpses of You, O Lord, that we might see You, that we might know You. Just as Jesus, when He said to His disciples in that famous passage coming out of uh, Samaria where he met with the woman at the well. This is John chapter 4 and he's talking about what he's doing and what he's about and he says, I tell you, verse 35, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. He wasn't speaking about an earthly harvest as if they were just looking down at their feet. Now look up and see the harvest. No, he's speaking spiritually. And so as they looked up, whether they saw anything white on the horizon, and it's been argued in different ways, and I'm not preaching that text today, but he is speaking primarily, see with my eyes. See what is far beyond the horizon. We're not talking about the material. We're talking about the eternal. He is, Jesus says, I want you to see with my eyes. Jesus does not command something he's not going to empower us to do. And so he says to us disciples, Look into this world and see the coming harvest. That's what he sees. We need his eyes. Just as Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. Paul is expanding on that here in Ephesians, ultimately, as he is reminding the church what has been done. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are the riches of His inheritance. You have been adopted. You are children of God. You have been raised up and are already seated in the heavenly places. Jesus said it is done. Believe it by faith and live it. God is not encumbered by this thing that we call time. He is not confounded by what we consider transient and temporary. And though we become transfixed on both. And so lift our eyes up, Lord, that we might see with your eyes. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. God sees eternally. We already sang this verse. Revelation 1.8 Jesus is just as present in our tomorrow. Listen carefully to the way I'll say this. He is just as present in our tomorrow as He is in our today and as He is in our yesterday. Jesus said, Revelation 1a, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and was and is to come. This time thing that we wrestle with does not encumber God. It gives me great hope that he is just as present in our tomorrow. He's already standing there before we ever move into that experience. He is just 
as present in our yesterday. He holds all things. We can know God and know His hope and know His riches and know His power because Jesus is risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. He has triumphed over this life and now lives, rules, and reigns eternally at the right hand of God. That's what Paul says in verse 21. He's far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things for the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's no one and no thing greater than Jesus. In the material world, that's what every name means. The name means any title or rank. But in the spiritual world, that's what rule, authority, power, and dominion. That was common language amongst uh, Jewish scholars, even in Jesus' day, for the spiritual realm, for the demonic forces of evil. Jesus is above all, greater than all, rules all, all things are under his authority and sovereignty. In Paul's parallel passage in Philippians verse nine, chapter 2, verse 9, this is very similar to the passage in Ephesians 1 here. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, there is power to bring even the most mighty of men to their knees. But at the name of Jesus, there is also power to bring life and to renew life. The Apostle Peter preached in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men which we must be saved. There's no other name. The name of Jesus holds all power, the power of life. There's two images I think that immediately come to mind, at least my mind, when I, when I hear the phrase, under his feet. God put all things under his feet. We have the picture of the throne room where Jesus is seated on the throne, ruler, rightful king and rightful ruler of all kingdoms. And I say it is no iron throne, but he is ruling and reigning where all men are below him. That throne is raised, if not bowing to him. So there's that picture of his sovereignty, of his authority. But then there's a greater picture even of that than that, of his power and majesty. We also can go to Isaiah, for that picture, Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Well, that takes our gaze and our picture far beyond a room, a throne room, but to the heavens, to the universe itself. And we know that after God created all things in six days, he rested on the seventh. So with that, with that mindset, we have Jesus for whom and through whom all things were made, on the seventh day, sitting in heaven, did he cross his feet and rest them upon the earth? Certainly a picture of majesty and power. And though Jesus is seated on the throne, he is not 
resting. He is ruling. In this other parallel passage in Colossians, so Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they were all written while Paul was under house arrest in Rome, and they all have this parallel passage where Paul is proclaiming the supremacy of Jesus, his rule and authority, his name above all names, and his headship for the church. And so here's the passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I love that. that in his, the other passage, no other name, no other power is greater than Jesus. Here Paul is saying, actually Jesus created all other powers. He's the author of even their life. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus, though he is seated, he is not resting. He is not passive. He is active. He is ruling. He is sustaining. He is holding all things together. Every life, every breath, every heartbeat, from every sparrow that flaps its wings in your backyard trying to build a nest, to every king or president that flaps his lips trying to build a kingdom or a nation, he is sustaining and holding all things together. Jesus is also filling all things. Back to that theme of emptiness. Just as the world was empty and void and God filled it with his very life and breath, Jesus is filling all that is empty. He is completing all that is promised. He is actively at work, and therefore we have the hope that he would fill us too. Jesus came and said, I have come to bring life to the full, life to abundance, life overflowing. The hope that we have that he is filling, the way he primarily does that for the church is through the sending of the Spirit the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us because we too now become the temple of God. That imagery of Jesus is our high priest, but we are the dwelling place of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it goes beyond that. Paul takes us beyond a a physical structure that the living God dwelt in and says actually Jesus is the head of the church, his body. There is a living, vibrant relationship between God's people and Him. They are life together. The head of the church is no man, no woman, no pastor, no elder, no bishop, no pope. The head of the church, the true senior pastor. And I use that phrase because Peter in 1 Peter 5 says, Jesus is the chief shepherd. The first poimen in the Greek. It's the word we get pastor from. Chief, he is first. He is senior. He is lead. Pastor. As long as we understand that, we can use the titles we do. We are called pastors, and I really don't have a problem with men using that title or churches using that title for a man to be a senior pastor, but I would like to defer clearly that I am not the senior pastor of this church. I am an under-shepherd entrusted to lead and guide for a season. He is the eternal pastor. Praise God for that. May he always be at the top of any org chart. And let us not forget that. 
even as we come to try to organize more effectively and efficiently, that at the end of the day, Jesus, our head, directs us. And we trust him to do that. Jesus loves the church. Maybe this is a slight tangent, but I think it's worth saying. Probably preaching to the choir, but maybe there's some listening that will not engage with the church. The church, his body. I know the church does hurt. And it is hard. But we cannot be in a living, growing relationship with Jesus the head and reject the church. For He never does. This is not to diminish the hurt and the pain and the difficulty of coming together in family, families that are messy. But it is to encourage that we work in the way that the Scriptures teach us to bring hurts and wrongs to our brothers and sisters, that we could be reconciled, that we could find mercy, grace, and healing, which only grows us stronger. It is His way and His will. Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. He fills the church. And He chooses the church as His only means to expand His kingdom on earth. You cannot depart from the church, reject the church, and have a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus. Because in effect, you are saying to Jesus, the head, I know better than you. I can do this on my own. And he will not allow that. St. Augustine is reportedly the one to have said, and he probably can't argue this side of eternity, the church may be a harlot, but she is my mother. I think there's a lot of room to discuss what that could mean for us. Meant to be, I think, encouraging, though I can't get into his mind. Jesus the head, though, means more than we have a great leader, a great pastor. It means we have this living, vital connection with him and therefore with God. The head has supremacy and authority to direct the body, does it not? And if we use that analogy... When a sound mind directs a body to work and that body does not work, we call it disease or paralysis. And I think the church as a whole today may be both diseased and paralyzed because it has forgotten who the head of the church is And it's forgotten the importance of the body as a whole. I think we need to ask a few hard questions in response to this. What then does this mean? And I will ask them along with you. Or at least I invite you to do that. You can tune out if you want. Who or what has the highest authority in your life? Who or what has the highest authority in my life? Is it Jesus or is it me? And I think it's sometimes difficult to know that. We probably see ourselves wavering from time to time. I would ask you how often when you have big decisions to make, and I'll let you categorize what that means, big decisions, how often are you praying first seeking the Lord's guidance 
Some big decisions need to happen in a moment, don't they? Nehemiah prayed, basically, and I love this prayer, God help me. An opportunity came and he was speaking to the king. He couldn't go away for a few days and think about it. God help me now. We need those prayers for big decisions. But we also know we have many big decisions that take some days and some thinking and some processing that could change the trajectory of our life. How often are we praying, saying, Lord, lead, Lord, guide, I want to hear you. Are we confessing sin? Are we looking to hear his voice through the Spirit and then make a decision? Whether we hear clearly or not, we've presented ourselves to him. We've sought others maybe for counsel. We've walked through it that way. Is that normal? Is that normative? Or is it normative, I make my decision and then I'm praying and asking God to bless it. I'm asking others then to pray and may this go well because I've already decided and hear me, there is grace upon grace. If that's normative for you, or if the way you have led your life for decades has been this ladder, your way, your will, God bless it. He may fully bless it. His grace is beyond anything we could ever imagine. Seek it. Receive it. I should ask, Myself, how regularly do I do things I don't feel like doing, but that I know are God's will? You can invert that. How often do I not do things that I want to do because I know it is not what God wants from me? And with maybe some of those questions, we start to see who has highest authority in our life. Question two, who has headship? And let me distinguish those two slightly because there still is authority to the head. But I'm talking about where do we draw our life from? Where's the source of our life? Is it from Jesus and His filling us and giving us purpose and giving us meaning through His commission Or is it some earthly pleasure or prominent position or another person or a dream of those things? That's where we're drawing life from, believing they will satisfy. Maybe the most succinct picture of sin in all of Scripture, Jeremiah 2.13. I don't have it in my notes. God says, my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned me. They've rejected me, the source of life, the source of living water. And they have dug out, this is number two, they have dug out for themselves cisterns, wells that can hold no water. They've abandoned me. I'm the source of life. They've walked away from eternal life to find it on their own, in their own strength, in their own effort, and it is empty. And they will not repent and return to me, the source of living water. Who is the source of our life? Who has headship in our life? All who drink of earthly wells will be thirsty again, but the water Jesus offers overflows to eternal life. Number three, who or what rules our lives? If not Jesus from his throne, then likely another, likely us. Our passions Our desires often rule us. We give them power. We want something and we don't get it. So we become irritable, angry, stressed, altogether unpleasant to be around, a tyrant who has been usurped. And do you know 
which usurpers are the most powerful in most of our lives? Children. And my five and seven-year-old can usurp my power without even trying. And so when I become agitated, irritable, angry, I have to ask that question. What is ruling in my heart? What am I desiring that I want that I'm not getting in this situation? We also can become ruled by sin. Ultimately, we give it power and then we become ruled. We become enslaved. We become trapped. We become addicted. We become oppressed, afflicted, and in bondage. And if that's your reality this morning, if what rules you is sin and you do not want it to rule and you don't know how to rewind back to that point where you gave it authority, in fact, you can't even remember how that happened, but now you do not do what you want to do, There is only one chain breaker. There is only one deliverer. There is only one rescuer. The blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, breaks chains and delivers you. Ask him. Seek him. He will deliver you. He will give you freedom and hope when you center on him as Lord, King, Head, Ruler, master. What's incredible here is that Jesus is a good king. Though he's seated on that throne, though we would bow before him, he is a good king. Because the one who frees us from slavery, and greater than that, the one who saves us from death, is the one that we would willingly give our life to. And this is a good king. So we don't do it begrudgingly as if we have to pay back, though we never can. We do it willingly and eagerly out of love and joyful submission. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That's our aim, that we would please Him. And so question number four, and the most important one, how do we please Him? How do we please this King, our Savior, our God, our Master. We love Him. The greatest commandment of all. Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. We come to believe Him and trust Him. When the Pharisees asked them, what must we do? What's the work that we must do, Jesus? Jesus said, here's the work you must do. Believe. You don't think believe is work? It is. Jesus said it. Believe. Doesn't this happen naturally? You work to believe. Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. You work to believe by walking in obedience to the one who has proven himself worthy, has proven himself love, and has called us to love him. We believe, therefore we trust, and we repent. repent. Repentance is a gift that somehow we've used to beat people over the head with, Repentance simply means to turn and go the right way. You ever been lost before? You wouldn't admit it, but if you were, it's a gift when you have a, an easy U-turn. We were just driving the other day and we were looking and like there's a U-turn in Redmond and we're like, that is impossible. To turn there, you have to cross three lanes of traffic and there is never not any traffic. I've been here at three in the morning and there's traffic here. 
It is a gift to be able to turn freely and come back the other way and go the right direction. That's repentance. To see your lost and the ability to return. That's a gift. And Jesus gives it to us. To see where we've been going and say, no, that's, that's the dead end. That's lost. Come to him and follow him. Turn to him and pray, Jesus, be my master. If there's any other master, we repent of that master. Any other ruler that we are following, any other source of life, we reject that. We turn from that. It does not fill us. It is empty. Jesus, be our Lord and King. Be our only satisfaction. Fill us. Lead us. Give us your life, your meaning, and your purpose, and he will do so. He will do so. All authority has been given to Jesus, and with that authority, this is amazing, church, with that authority, he gives it to you. He gives it to me. All authority given to Jesus, and he says, I am seated on the throne. I will come one day, but until that day, you are my ambassadors. What is he thinking What he's thinking is, these are my children. They have my life and blood in them. And they are not alone. The Holy Spirit is with them. So go. Go be my ambassadors. Go bring reconciliation to that which is broken in this world. Because now only you can. This world is broken. It needs healing. It is lost. It needs to see. It is hopeless, it needs hope. It is in the darkness, it needs light. So go, I am with you. This is Matthew 28, 18. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, but now you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us, church, through the Spirit. We have more than hope for the one day. We have a purpose and a mission today. And we have His presence and His power in and through us. As we strive to fulfill this mission, we find our joy and satisfaction. Where do I get that title, ambassadors, that I'm speaking of? Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and God makes his appeal through us, so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And praise God, we inherit and are called to and commissioned to the same mission. Lord, give us spiritual eyes to perceive that we might know you, that we might know what we've been called to, that we might know the hope and the riches of your power and fill us to fullness, Lord. As we respond, consider this, and I guess I can invite the team at this point. If Jesus can accomplish all that he is doing, ruling, reigning, sustaining, commissioning, filling, while seated Imagine what he can and will do when he rises up. Because one day he will rise and exchange his throne for a war horse. 
The picture that John leaves us with in Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he will judge and make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Jesus is living, ruling, sustaining, and filling, and he is coming. What is empty will one day abound. What is yet longing will one day be satisfied. What is sick will one day be healed. What is dead will be raised to life again. What is broken will be reconciled. And in the meantime, we are commissioned with His power to the same ministry. King Jesus, help us. Thank You for being our King, our Head, our Senior Pastor, for growing us, teaching us, convicting us, encouraging us, commissioning us, and above all, for dying for us that we might have life. We pray that we would know Your love your grace, and your hope today, tomorrow, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.